Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lost in Science summer series where we feature every week a couple of tales from the science storytelling event, The Laboratory. Uh, this week we have two excellent stories from you. Later on, Kiri Belby will be talking about English biologist Christopher Pold, who was pioneer of freezing sperm for artificial insemination. But first we have Ben McKenzie. Uh, ben McKenzie is a performer, writer, game designer and nerd for all seasons. He's written and performed stand-up, sketch comedy, theatre and late-night museum tours. He's part of the team behind the award-winning time travel comedy Night Terrace and currently co-hosts the Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast Pratt Chat. He's also a game creator, including uh, as lead writer Table of Tales The Crooked Crown, which is a PlayStation VR game from Tin Man Games, which will be releasing in early 2019. And... Today, Ben will be telling us the story of Australian computer scientist Veronica Megler, who was the creator of a revolutionary interactive adventure game in 1982. So for those of you who haven't been to Laboratory Story before, I am an atypical speaker because I have no scientific qualifications whatsoever. Um, when I started doing science comedy, I used to refer to myself as a scientician because it was a word I made up so I couldn't be sued under the Trades Descriptions Act. Uh, and that is still true. Um, but I am all those things that we just talked about. And tonight, I would like to tell the story of one of my science heroes, Dr. Veronica M. Megler, perhaps one of the most influential, certainly the most successful computer scientists to come out of Melbourne. But to tell the story of Dr. Megler, it is best to tell the story of how she changed the face of computer games forever. I want you to travel back with me to a time before smartphones or iPads, before Xboxes and Playstations, even before Sega and Nintendo. Yes, I would like you to come with me back to that dark time we know only as the early 1980s. Arcade machines were taking off. Plenty of people had an Atari 2600 in the living room at home. And those were fine if you were into jumping, smashing or shooting things. But if you wanted a plot and story in your video games, then your best bet was to play adventure games. And for those, you needed a personal computer. And computers in the early 80s were not friendly. Most of them didn't have mice. They were based around text input. Uh, and I know the reception to this next line will show the age of some of the people in the room. But to even start up a program, you had to type in arcane instructions like load star 8-1, right? which made no sense to most people at the time. And once you got the game started, it might have had very slow and chunky graphics, but the earliest adventure games were entirely text-based. Now, text adventures got better during their history, but interacting with a fictional world using only typed commands always carried with it some degree of frustration because as well as figuring out what to do to solve a puzzle, you also had to figure out how to tell the computer to bloody well do it. And the earliest games could only understand really simple two-word instructions like go west or get sword. You had to learn to speak each game's very limited language. And if you entered a cave with a sword on the ground 
and a goblin lurking in the corner, right? You couldn't just type attack goblin because the game would say, with what? Because it only understood how to use items that you were already carrying. You had to tell it to pick up the sword and then tell it to attack the goblin with the sword. Get it? But still, for those who didn't have a group of friends to play Dungeons and Dragons with, like this guy, it was the closest you could get to climbing Gumby-like inside a book and interacting directly with an adventure story firsthand. Now, this was the state of text adventures way back in 1981 when a guy named Fred Milgram of a software company based here in Melbourne called Melbourne House wondered if maybe professionally trained computer folk could do a better job than the hobbyists who were dominating the computer games landscape at the time. So he put up a notice at Melbourne University looking for student coders and this is where our hero enters the story. Veronica Megler, in her final year of computer science, answered the ad and Fred instantly saw she was the best person for the job. He gave her a very simple instruction. Write the best adventure game ever. Oh, and it's going to be based on a book. Just a little one, you know, no big deal. Just a little thing called The Hobbit. Right, no pressure, okay? But Veronica was up to the task, and in fulfilling it, she became one of the earliest professional computer game developers and writers. Veronica thought about what she disliked about earlier games that she'd played, games like Colossal Cave Adventure. And as she read through The Hobbit, she made notes about how to turn the action into puzzles for players to solve. Because throughout the history of adventure games, it's these puzzles that have been the main attraction of those games. And the most famous ones are outrageously difficult. I want to take, for example, a game that I played the most uh, of all text adventures, which was the video game version of Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, Now, in the original non-video game version of the story, at one point, the character Ford Prefect says, you're going to need this fish in your ear, and gives a babel fish to Arthur Dent so that suddenly this human being could understand every alien language ever. If you haven't read the book, seriously, what are you doing with your life? Um, but in the game, that doesn't happen. In the game, it's changed so that Ford doesn't give you the Babel fish. Instead, there's a Babel fish vending machine, but it doesn't work properly. So in order to get a Babel fish and understand the alien languages, you have to use a towel, a satchel, a dressing gown, and a pile of unread mail in order to get it. And you have to use them in the right way and in the correct order. And the only way to figure out that sequence is by trial and error. And this was a game we played for fun, right? And this is like a really badly designed escape room, right? You've got all these weird things. You've got to get them in the right order. And it's not least like an escape room because in a lot of the games, you have a time limit before something goes wrong. And all of that is really difficult. And then on top of that, you've got to add the fact that you are struggling to get the computer to understand your commands to get it to do what you want. Now, Veronica was aware of that problem, so she brought in her friend Phil Mitchell to work on The Hobbit. And his job was to improve the interface, getting it to draw simple pictures of every location, which was a real novelty at the time. Most text adventures didn't have any pictures. And more importantly, he introduced more natural language using a thing they called English with an I. Input English, English. Now, this was a big deal. Instead of get sword and attack goblin, the Hobbit understood actual sentences. You could type attack the goblin with the sword and the game understood that you wanted to pick up the sword first and then use it to attack the goblin. Revolutionary. (laughs) Now, it also understood more complex things. You could viciously attack the goblin, which meant you hit it harder, but you made yourself tired. Or you could pick up everything except the green bottle. 
Now, it was still pretty clunky, and later games, including the Hitchhiker's Guide game, got even easier to use, but it was much, much better than what came before. And while Phil was sorting that out, Veronica, meanwhile, as well as adapting the book so that she could write the game based on it, was creating what we'd now call a game engine. Now, this was a new concept at the time. A game engine is a system that handles all the actions in the game. It interfaced, in her case, with three different data structures that she created from scratch, which represented the locations, the objects, and the characters in the game. And this was a, a new and radically modern approach for the time. Now, Choose Your Own Adventure books store all the information about objects and available actions right there on the page in the text of the story because they don't have anywhere else to put it. And that's how early interactive text adventures worked. They included all that information in the story file that was plugged into the program that accepted input from the person playing it. Now, that meant a lot of things had to be repeated. A sword, a lamp, a map, they all had behaviours that they shared in common, but you had to write them into those objects separately. So... You know, that was taking up a lot of the limited memory that was available on the computers at the time. And it also required a lot of repetitive work from writers. So Veronica invented this system that was abstracted from the fiction. Behind the scenes, there were these general functions that handled things that you commonly wanted to do in the game with lots of different objects, like picking them up or activating them or putting them inside a container. And objects could use most of those actions by default, but you could also add extra ones just by labelling an object as a container or as wearable or as consumable, something you could eat and all that kind of thing. And you only had to write special instructions for unusual objects, like things that were too big or heavy to pick up or things with special powers, like, I don't know, maybe some kind of magic ring or something? I don't know. Now, this system, a game engine, saved space and it made it easier to add and change specific locations, characters and objects in the game. Messages to the player were constructed by the program using templates. So the game didn't have to have all these sentences pre-written into it. If Gandalf was going to give you a map in the game, it just needed to know who was giving what to whom and it could make that sentence up on the fly. This was much more sophisticated and, again, saved lots and lots of memory. Now, Veronica was also pretty smart and she recognised how boring adventure games became once you had solved all the puzzles. This is another way that they were like escape rooms. You couldn't play them more than once. So she decided to make the game unpredictable, which meant that they had to write their own method of generating random numbers because the built-in ones on the personal computers of the time just weren't random enough. They came up with two similar numbers every time you played it. And these random numbers were generated at the start of the game and they changed some of the starting conditions of how the game worked, where you might find a particular character or the layout of a particular sequence of caves that go through the mountain. Now, one downside to this was that it meant that you could end up in the game with a situation that made it impossible for you to finish the game. But Veronica decided it was worth it to make the game more challenging and dynamic and exciting. And most of the people who played the game agreed. Not all of them, but, you know, those people, they need to live a little. Now, one place in which this randomness was particularly felt was one of the most innovative things that Veronica put into the game, and that was the characters, because the characters in The Hobbit had minds of their own. Now, in other text adventure games, characters pretty much behaved like objects. They just waited around for you to interact with them and just, you know, you talked to them in order to solve puzzles. And their behaviour was exactly the same every time you talked to them or played the game. But the characters in The Hobbit travelled around with you and they also had their own sets of behaviours defined in the character database that Veronica had created. They'd take their own turns when you were doing things in the game. Like Gandalf, for example, has a very short attention span 
And he's also a bit of a kleptomaniac. And in fact, the last time I played the game, right at the start, um, he gave me the map to, you know, the way to the mountain. Um, but as I'm trying to open a chest in Bag End, where you start out, he took the map back off me and then wandered out the door without me, <laughs> right? Now, that's not how I remember the book starting. And you could play the game again, and Gandalf wouldn't necessarily do that. The most famous thing that one of the characters does is, is Thorin, who every now and then, Thorin, the leader of the dwarves, will sit down and start... Right? Um, a phrase that is now in internet meme legend. Because he does it all the time. Now, all of these innovations that were created by Veronica, uh, the randomness, character agency, the flexibility of the game engine, along with Phil's improved parser and graphics, these all combine to make The Hobbit the best-selling text adventure game of all time. Now, they didn't really record sales numbers of video games back then, but it sold at least a quarter of a million copies, and we know that millions of people have played it. And it stayed on the shelves in shops for five years. That was unheard of at the time. It was a massive, massive hit. Now, for Veronica, this is my favourite part of the story, um, she finished up at Melbourne House after a couple of years and she made a couple of other games. One of the things they did there was um, they, the developers were given $20 a week to go and play arcade games so they could figure out what was popular and they could just copy them. Uh, imagine, imagine taking $20 to an arcade now. It wouldn't get you very far. But in those days, it could be professional development. Uh, and when she finished up, in those pre-internet days, the people at Melbourne House lost track of her because she went back to a, a more sort of traditional computer science career. In fact, she stopped playing video games. She didn't really interact with the world of video games for about 10 years. And it wasn't until around 2008 that she realised that this game that she had written and created was this massive, massive hit. And she realised it because her email address became Googleable at the place where she was working and she started to get fan mail from all these people about a game that she had written like 30 years earlier telling her it had changed their life, that it had made them, you know, realise how much they wanted to be an adventurer, that it just fed into their love of being a nerd, you know. And when she learned that and also looked at the state of computer games today and saw how little respect and, um, and advocacy there was for women working in the sector, she decided, well, she was going to be a little bit more public and talk about it a little bit more. But she's still a fairly private person, which is why this story is mostly about what she did. But now she works uh, in big data. In fact, she designed a big data search engine for her PhD and she now works uh, in analysis for, I think she's still at Amazon. She was when I, um, in the things where I was reading about this. And I'd like to thank her because you know, the kind of games that I love the most, adventure games, role-playing games, fantasy games, they all owe a massive debt to her. She was a huge pioneer. She wrote the first, one of the first game engines. She created the first video game characters that had minds of their own. And let's not overlook that she wrote and designed the very first video game ever to be set in the world of Middle-earth. She really delivered on that difficult brief of making the best adventure game ever. And who wouldn't want to play a game that starts like this? You are in a comfortable tunnel-like hall. To the east, there is a round green door. You see a wooden chest, Gandalf... Gandalf is carrying a curious map. And Thorin. Gandalf gives the curious map to you. Thorin says, hurry up. What would you do? Well, there's only one way to find out. And luckily for you, fans are still making sure you can play Veronica Megler's game even today. Thank you. A 
across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Our next speaker is Kiri Belby. Now, Kiri is a lecturer and course coordinator for the Graduate Diploma of Reproductive Science at Monash University. She graduated from the University of Sydney with a PhD in Animal Reproduction and Genetics, followed by a Science Communication Chaser at the Australian National University. And today, Kiri is talking about English biologist Christopher Polge, who was pioneer of freezing sperm for artificial insemination. Uh, due to the topic matter, there may be some rude words in the following, so please be warned. It's a great pleasure to be here today to talk to you about one of my scientific heroes who I fell in love with during my PhD. Um, he's an agricultural, was an agricultural scientist and cryobiologist from the UK by the name of Ernest John Christopher Polge. And uh, just like my previous speaker, I will also just abbreviate that to Chris, the common Chris. That will work easy. Now, he was born into a Quaker family, um, a poor farming family, on the 16th of August in 1926. And he died on the 17th of August, 2006, at the age of 80, having made a fairly substantial contribution to the field of reproductive biology. Um, because he's not that dead, it was actually quite hard to find a lot of information on him. Um, but I found a couple of obituaries and some pretty bad uh, newspapers from the UK online. And I also have some personal accounts from some of his contemporaries. So I can't promise you any facts. There's going to be, I don't know what's happening in here, but I might squeeze some innuendo in there that can probably make up for it. Um, so when I was doing my PhD, I worked with frozen ram sperm, as you do, um, and I had to reference where it was first frozen. And uh, that's when I came across Chris Polge, because in my entire thesis, I referenced this guy like once. And um, for anyone who's written a large body of scientific work, you'll know that you usually see ideas evolve as you go through kind of, you know, scientific development. So you might see someone work on time or temperature and groups will compete and suddenly you'll have this, you know, crazy, crazy innovation. But Chris Polge, no, there was no trace of him before this. And then bam, 1949, nature paper, frozen sperm. So, you know, this just screams, it just screams serendipitous discovery, I think. Um, and that really follows my kind of work, which uh, I, my motto is to work smart, not hard. And I believe that serendipitous discoveries do that for us all. So um, just to, for those of you who aren't familiar with too many great serendipitous, serendipitous discoveries of all time, I'll, I'll, I'll just bring you up to some clinical ones. Um, penicillin was a pretty great one um, because of someone's shitty hygiene in the lab and he grew some mould over the weekend and bam, antibiotics. Nice one, Fleming. Um, a lesser known one, anaesthesia. So I found out that anaesthesia actually came about from doctors going on what was uh, affectionately called an ether frolic <laughs> until one of them maybe pushed it a bit too far but then came back to life. Anaesthesia. Who knew? Um, more recently, and we're probably all aware of this one, Viagra um, is a great uh, serendipitous discovery. It was actually a drug commissioned by Pfizer to help people who had heart attacks. So it was to stop you from getting to having a repeat heart attack, um, only it kind of stimulated the other love muscle. And so these poor guys with heart attacks were walking around with raging erections and Pfizer thought, this is not going to work, we're going to have to rebrand. That's where Viagra comes from. Um, ironically, one of the side effects of Viagra is heart attack. So, <laughs> not sure what happened there. Um, but back to Chris, because that's why we're here. Um, so, how does someone accidentally 
discover how to freeze semen, thaw it out, and then get something pregnant. Now, I thought this a lot during my PhD when I wasn't doing my PhD, because that's what you do when you're doing a PhD. Congratulations, Sam, on getting through that. Um, I would love to tell you a story about a frivolous subarctic sex romp, but no, that's not what it was. Or a cheeky lab weekend wank in the freezer gone wrong. (laughs) Not that either, unfortunately. Um, In fact, Chris Polge himself actually tells people fairly often what happens, so it's a very open story amongst the right circles. Um, You will be amongst that circle after this. Um, So Chris was working under the guidance of someone called Dr Audrey Smith and they were trying to add particular ingredients to um, sperm before they froze it so that when they thawed it, it would um, withstand the damage that's caused by cryopreservation. So they were working with amino acids and polysaccharides. Now, these things did not work in any way, shape or form. They tried for about a year to do this and nothing happened, so they parked it, went away, did something else and then about six months later, Chris came back and he thought, oh, I've just got like a little bit of that stuff left and instead of chucking that out, I might just give it one more crack. And lo and behold, sperm was frozen, thawed and when it was thawed, it actually had a lot of motility left in it. So it was the first time that they'd seen this in the lab. And so Chris goes to his PhD supervisor and he says, oh, that's, that's great, you know, make up a fresh batch and we'll start some new experiments. So they make a fresh batch and then, again, nothing works. And um, it wasn't Chris's PhD supervisor's first rodeo supervising PhD students. So he said, you know what, take, take the sample, send it down to chemistry down the road in Cambridge, we'll figure out what's actually in that bottle. And lo and behold, it was not what we thought was in the bottle. Um, it was actually a mixture of egg white and glycerol. And uh, this is something that's used to mount histology samples onto glass microscope slides. It's a very thick, um, sticky liquid that gets used. In Chris's words, the labels became confused. Um, Read, I fucked up, but it worked out for the best. So we got a nature paper out of it. Um, Chris then moved on, so he was doing most of this work in frozen thawed cock semen. And yes, that is as fun to say as you think it might be, because that's perfectly anatomically, anatomically meaningful. Um, he moved from hens uh, to calves, uh, to cows, and he uh, managed to cryopreserve higher mammal semen and get cows pregnant. The first calf to be born was aptly named Frosty. No points for creativity, but hey, that's not what he did. Um, so Chris then kind of left the lab for a while, and he turned towards his entrepreneurial side of things, and um, he ended up touring around the world promoting freezing sex sperm, uh, freezing sperm so that you could uh, inseminate um, large groups of animals with the same sire because you could actually now transport sperm across large distances. So he went over to uh, Europe, North and South America, and he dramatically changed the genetic makeup of, of a lot of the, the herds around those areas. He was known for a long time as Britain's ambassador for frozen semen, and now, I, now you know what I want to be when I grow up um, with a title like that. Um, At the end of 1960, um, he moved on from freezing sperm to freezing whole embryos. And this was actually quite a... It's kind of a big deal. It's the closest we've gotten to proper cryogenic uh, preservation. So an embryo is made up of two different types of cells. We have an inner cell mass that's going to become the baby, and we have a trifectoderm that's going to become the placenta. And these cells are talking to each other. So he used the same method, dunked it in some glycerol, dunked it in some liquid nitrogen, bam, frozen embryo, thawed it out, first calf, guess what it was called... Frosty (laughs) 2. 
just like Terminator 2 and Aliens. It was the more sophisticated plot line that got them through. Um, it was around this time that he started supervising a student called Ian Wilmot. And some of you might know that Ian went on to produce the first clone, um, a.k.a. Dolly the Sheep. So Chris also left a legacy in that area. Um, now, with any good story, there's a bit of controversy that I discovered doing this with my online romp um, into glycerol and sperm. And I found that uh, a couple of other people might have actually done it before, Chris. Um, so just to learn a few lessons in what you should do if you discover something like this, let's go through this. Um, Professor Jean Rostand from Paris had actually done this with frog semen three years before Chris and presented it at a small conference in Paris. But it was in French, so nobody understood what was going on. That was very bad. I'm sorry. If anyone's French, it's, it's bad. Um, and at the same time, there was a Russian scientist by the name of Smirnov, who I presume comes from the very same family that invented the Smirnov Ice Double Black, which robbed me of my teenage sobriety. Um, he figured out how to freeze ram sperm and create lambs the same way. Um, however, he never formally published, presumably because he's from the same family that invented Smirnov Ice Double Blacks, and they never got anywhere. Um, so a lesson here on visibility, guys. <sighs> don't write in French. Don't drink too much Smirnoff Ice Double Black. Go to Cambridge and publish in Nature, and that should get you, that should get you through. Um, just to finish off, a personal note about Chris. Um, he was described as gregarious and enjoying the lighter side of life, which I interpret as being a massive pisshead. I don't know how you'd take that any other way. Um, I got given a good story from one of his contemporaries about a conference he went to in East Berlin before the falling of the wall. And uh, he was a bit tiddly one night walking home and he found a place that was quiet to relieve himself and he got busted by the Stasi for pissing on the wall. And apparently it took the British consul to come and save him and get him out of the country. Um, and uh, it's a bit of an inspiration for all of us in Brunswick because I'm, I'm sure that we've all pissed on the boundaries of capitalism at some point in our lives. <laughs> yeah. little political joke there. <laughs> Scientists can do that too. Um, today you can address all your com consumer semen needs online. Did you know that? Um, thanks to Chris Polger's poor labelling and his strong entrepreneurial skills. Genetics Australia have released a semen catalogue where you can... Uh, I love saying those words together, semen catalogue, where every year you can choose from the best sires across the country. Um, in fact, they're making about a million dollars a year doing this, so they have literally made big business out of semen. Uh, on a human note, uh, there are hundreds or tens of thousands of, of babies born each year from frozen donor semen. Um, in the UK, there was a report recently that uh, 17 men had fathered 500 children between them from one sperm bank. There's laws against this now, but um, anthropologi anthropologically, that's quite creepy, but um, scientifically, it's kind of cool. Like, it's like, well, <laughs> you really managed to go far and wide, these guys. Um, the same thing with embryos. So now we freeze a lot of embryos and we actually get better rates freezing embryos and transferring them than we do with fresh embryos. So there's another interesting little legacy from, from Chris's work. And I think I've probably gone on for a bit too long. Um, so thank you, everybody, for your attention and thank you, Chris Polt, for your contribution to agriculture, genetics and modern assisted reproductive technology. Cheers. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. Big thank you to our speakers, 
uh, Kiri Belby and Ben McKenzie. Lost Insights, of course, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you're on Twitter. We're at Lost in Science 1. Or you can find our podcast on your favourite podcast streaming app. If you're able to give us a good rating and review, please do so. That helps other people to find us. Or you can just find us on the radio same time every week when Chris, Claire and Stu get lost. In science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.